I'd like you to open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Well, we've been doing this Advent, uh, besides preparing for the Nativity play, uh, we, we've been looking at ancient promises from the Old Testament concerning the coming of Jesus. And so, for example, last week we looked at this promise in Genesis 3, uh, when God said that there will be a child that will come from Eve, a descendant of Eve, who will crush the head of the serpent, who will save the human race. So as you see from the very beginning, right after Adam and Eve sinned, God provides remedy, God promises a Savior. And so as we look at those kind of prophecies being fulfilled in the New Testament, and we have the benefit of looking back into the old history and seeing how all of that played out, hundreds of prophecies related to Christ fulfilled. As we look at that, we realize that God is, is a meticulous planner. God is a very careful God. He pays attention to circumstances and details. And I wonder if that encourages you today as you look at your own life. I wonder if you see God as a careful planner. God who knows exactly what's going on with you. God who, who does not leave anything to chance. God who knows how to arrange circumstances in just the right way. Just like Jesus who was promised to come at a particular time, to a particular place, and to a particular family, to save in a particular way. So is everything else in your life is like that. God does things intentionally and carefully. God is not surprised at your circumstances. Do you trust him? That's the same God that sent Jesus. Do you trust him that he would govern your life in the same intentional, careful, and a loving way? Now, of course, we don't understand a lot of what God is doing in our lives. Let, let me be one to say that, that there's lots of questions that I have for him that I don't understand why he's doing certain things. But I want to trust him. I want to trust him that his plan is good, that his power is unopposed by anyone else. There's no power greater than God's. And if God has determined that something would happen, how can it be thwarted? I want to trust him. I want to learn to trust. I want to grow in my trust of him. And I hope, I hope you do too. I hope this looking at the Old Testament and the New Testament and putting them together helps you see God as a, as a careful God, as God who's a meticulous planner. Well, today, we'll look at another promise, promise of a prophet. The last week we looked at the promise of a son, a child who would become the champion of humanity. Today we'll look at the promise of a prophet. Before I read the text, let me explain what a prophet is. Most of us think prophecy has to do with the future. Prophets are those who predict future, right? Well, it's, it's partly right. In the Old Testament, certainly there's a lot of prophets who predict future on behalf of God. But that's not the main function of a prophet. The main function of a prophet is to tell people what God wants them to know. Prophet is a mediator. He's a go-between. A prophet is somebody who speaks on behalf of God to God's people. That is the main function of a prophet. Of course, some of it has to do with future promises are made, and yet most of it has to do with the present. God speaking to his people through a prophet into the present, particular circumstances, and telling them what he thinks of it, what they should be doing, what they should be expecting. Prophet is a messenger. He's a, he's a mediator between God and, and humans, and he speaks on behalf of God. Let me give you an example of how that works in regular life. Uh, you've seen Polly, well, you've seen all of my daughters on stage, but 
probably about half of the kids here are mine. So, or thank you, Jillian. Uh, but uh, all right. So 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 you've seen Polly, the angel. Uh, she was an angel, and uh, and I've realized that as my children are growing older, the older children, they spend more time in their rooms upstairs. And so we often have to call them down for dinner or family worship or whatever. And so I would often send Polly, my angel here, uh, to fetch them, to get them. Polly is a tenacious, tenacious child. And so I send her and she always gets them. And so often I would say, Polly, go, go tell Lainey and Zoya that they have to come down for dinner. Now, if Polly would just go based on that, they would not open their doors to her. What they need to hear is that Papa said, you should come down to dinner. They need to hear Polly say, Papa wants you to come down. So Polly wouldn't speak on her own authority, but that she would bring the word of the Father to them. Once they hear that, they better come down, right? Because Polly doesn't speak on her own authority anymore. It's not just her running up to get her sisters to play with her. She now speaks on my authority. She is my little prophet. That's what Polly does. That's exactly what prophets do. I'm sending my prophet upstairs and tell her to say, thus says Papa, come down for dinner. That's exactly what she does. Now think about that as what prophets do. Moses, the prophet in our text, did that. God sent Moses to his people and God said, I'm going to deliver you out of Egypt. And Moses communicated that word, that message to the people. And then God said, go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh that he needs to let my people go out of Egypt. And Moses went to Pharaoh and communicated that message to him. So Moses, even though he predicted future events, most of his ministry as a prophet was speaking God's words to God's people. You remember that Moses went up on a mountain, Mount Horeb in our text here, and he came down with a law. Well, God gave him ten commandments. God said, this is how I want you to live now as free people now being brought into a land of promise, redeemed out of slavery, now this is how I want you to live. And Moses, being a faithful prophet, communicates God's word, God's law, to God's people. So that's what prophets do. Now let's read our text. And I want you to keep that idea of what a prophet does in mind. And now Moses promises that another prophet would come, one like him, and yet much greater than him. Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. But whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So God says through Moses that another prophet is coming. He will be like Moses, but he'll be greater than Moses. He will say everything that God means to say to humanity. And he will speak with authority. And anybody who reject that message, God himself will require of him. Now, thousands of years later, Peter, one of Jesus' followers, preaches a sermon that's recorded in Acts chapter 3. 
And in that sermon, Peter identifies Jesus as that promised prophet from the days of Moses. Peter says, now this promised prophet has come. He is the one that's like Moses, but greater than Moses that you've been waiting for, and now he has come. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to be talking about this prophet Jesus, promised by Moses, came, was born in a manger, suffered and died, and rose again for our sins. So let's consider this promised prophet. Like us to do three things today. Luckily for us, they're alliterated, which I don't know if anybody cares if I alliterate my outlines, but I do. It really helps me, so, so bear with me. I'd like us to look for him, look for this promised prophet. In other words, to consider why we need a prophet at all. Secondly, I'd like, to, I'd like us to learn about him or consider why Jesus is the prophet that we have longed for. And lastly, like us to listen to him. So let's look for him, learn about him, and finally listen to him. Now, I am convinced that this promise of a prophet in Deuteronomy 18 corresponds to one of our deepest longings. You see, we all long for God to speak. We want God to talk to us. We have questions, don't you? Don't you have questions for God? We want God to answer them. We want God to, to tell us what he thinks of us. We are wondering what our meaning is, what our value is, what our purpose is. We want God to explain to us what he is like, who he is, how he does things. The question is not what does the fox say. This, this is a, if it was a middle school crowd, man, this, this joke would kill. But the question is what does God say? That's the most important question. The most important question is, what does God say? And so we all long for that, don't we? We want to know what God thinks, what he says. We want a God who speaks. Not just a God who's kind of out there, some, some spiritual force, perhaps even credited with creation, but, but a God who's personal. A God who can speak to us and explain things to us. A few years ago, Nick Cave, uh, who's an artist, uh, released a song called We Call Upon the Author to Explain. We Call Upon the Author to Explain. Now, I don't share Nick Cave's angst and frustration uh, at trying to understand why this world has suffering and evil, but I do share that basic desire to talk to God, for God to explain to me, for the author of everything to tell me why things are the way they are. Don't you long for that? Don't you long for God? to speak. Now, where does that longing come from? You know, if we all feel like we don't quite understand reality and somebody bigger than us needs to explain it to us, where does that longing come from? Well, it comes from who we are. See, God made us a certain way. You remember in the Garden of Eden when God made Adam and Eve, they were designed to be in community with God. Part of an essential feature of our design is that we can communicate with God and then we can hear him communicating with us. We are, we are made to be in dialogue with God. And when sin entered the world in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, now we start treasuring our opinion more than his. Now we stop listening to him, and somehow it's what we think that matters more now. But the longing is still there. 
It's not completely erased by sin. Yes, it's marred. The image of God is marred and it's scarred, but it's still there. And it still whispers from within our heart that we need to hear God. God needs to speak to us if we have any hope of figuring out how this world works and how we are to live. C.S. Lewis, in, uh, in Weight of Glory, his famous sermon, he said, in the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each one of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself it is not, Lewis says. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. We all long to know how God thinks of us, what he thinks of us, what he feels about us. How does he judge us? How does he evaluate us? But because sin separates us from God, we can't just go and ask him, can we? We can't just go into his presence. Now you see this in this text where the Israelites, as Moses went up to the mountain to receive the law, the Israelites get scared. And they say, we don't want to hear God's voice because it's too loud. We don't want to see the lightning and the thunder and, and the smoke and the fire and all that. They're saying, we, we're afraid we're going to get hurt. We're going to die. So the Israelites say, we're just going to send Moses. Let Moses talk to God and then he can come back and talk to us. What are they doing? They're asking for a prophet. They're asking for a mediator. They know that even though they want to hear from God, they can't go and address God directly. They need somebody to be the in-between. Somebody to go and speak to God on their behalf and bring God's message back to them. And so we too, today, as we long to hear from God, we're looking for a prophet. We're looking for somebody to come and speak on behalf of God to us, to tell us what God thinks of us. Now let's learn about this prophet that God promised, this Jesus. He's like Moses, he's human, but he's greater than Moses. And he's given to fulfill our deepest longing. Jesus came as a perfect mediator, somebody who would tell us exactly what God thinks of us, who would perfectly communicate God's message to us, who would remove our fear before God's holiness and provide us with all the answers we've been looking for. That's Jesus. That's the kind of prophet he is. Not just another prophet in the line of many, but the final prophet. One who would finally tell us everything we need to know about God. Whose revelation would be complete. Charles Spurgeon says, God determined that at last he would put all the words he had to say to man into one heart. And that words should be spoken by one mouth to men. Furnishing a full, complete, an unchangeable revelation of himself to the human race. That's Jesus. All the words God ever wanted to say to us are put into his heart. And he will now speak with one voice to the human race. Jesus is unique among the prophets. What makes him superior to all the prophets is that he doesn't just bring a word of God to us, but he is the word himself. 
Now, this is one of the few times where you can appropriately use the phrase that the messenger is the message. In this case, it's true. The messenger, Jesus, is exactly what God wants to say through him. Now, let me show you how, how that works. And in John 1, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, it starts off by saying that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now look at John 1.14. And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this prophet is different. Something remarkable about him. He comes and we learn that he is God himself. And yet he becomes human and dwells among us. This is a complete revelation of God because it is God himself who comes as the message, as the word to us. The one who was there before anything was created. The one through whom everything was created. The glorious and holy one comes and becomes human and dwells among us. This glory, this holiness, it's crammed into our world. But he comes in an accessible way, doesn't he? He comes as a human being. One that can walk among us, who can converse with us. One that is accessible and approachable. The people could spend time with, they could touch him, they could hug him, they could eat with him. So he is like Moses in that way. He's human. But it is not like Moses in a different way because he is God himself. God becomes the message he wants to tell us. Jesus is the final prophet because there is no better way for God to speak to us than to come to us himself. What else is God going to do? If we're longing to hear from him, what else can he do? He comes and he speaks to us through Jesus, the God-man who becomes the message himself. Now, if Jesus is the message, the question then would be, what is it? What is the information, the content of that message that is communicated? Well, look at Jesus. God, man, two natures, combined in one person. What is the message then? That God and man should be together. That's the message. You see, God sends Jesus and he says, this is my word. What is the word? The word is reconciliation. The word, the message, the communication from God is that God wants to be together with us. What do we call Jesus at Christmas and during Advent? Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus comes to show us that God wants to be reconciled to people. That is the message. What do we call it at church? Gospel. Gospel. Good news that God wants to be with his people, that that relationship could be renewed and restored, that there could be peace between sinners and a holy God, that we could finally speak with God and be in dialogue and in relationship with him. The message that Jesus brings, that he embodies, literally embodies, is the gospel, the good news that God wants to be with his people. Now remember, we read from 1 John, or from John 1.14, it said that Jesus revealed grace and truth to us. 
This is the essence of the gospel, grace and truth. Truth simply means that God is going to be true to himself. It's not truth in terms of information that is correct. It's truth in terms of God's faithfulness to himself. God staying true to his own character. And part of that character is his intolerance for sin. And so God says, here's the message, Jesus. Jesus comes, revealing truth and grace. Truth meaning that God will not tolerate sin, that sin has to be punished, and yet there's grace. What does grace mean? Grace means that God will still love us, even though we are sinners, and he will not tolerate sin, but he will find a way to forgive us and to bless us and to welcome us back into relationship with himself. That's grace. That's the gospel. That God says, I want to be with you, and I will provide a way for that to happen. And what is what is the way? Well, the way is to go for this new prophet to another mountain. It's a way for Jesus to do something, something that Moses did, but do it more and do it better. You see, Jesus doesn't just speak of reconciliation. He doesn't just give us a law that we can't fulfill. He doesn't just tell us this is what God requires. You see, Moses went to the mountain and then he came back and gave us the law. But Jesus went up to the mountain and he never came back. He went on that mountain outside of the city of Jerusalem, the place of execution, the place of the skull, they called it Golgotha or Calvary. Jesus went up there and he went up as a prophet, as a mediator, as a go-between, was suspended between heaven and earth and didn't come down alive. Because all that holiness, all that glory that was spurned by us was put on his shoulders and he bore it and he was crushed by it. Now you remember when Moses, first time he came down from the mountain, he brought the two tablets of the law, the stone tablets where God put Ten Commandments on. He came down and he saw the sin of Israel. Israelites worshiping another idol. What does Moses do? Do you remember? He throws them down. He shatters the tablets in anger over human sin. What happens to Jesus? Jesus, who is himself the word, who is himself the message, who is himself the tablet of the law. What has happened to Jesus on the cross? He gets shattered by the anger of the Lord. This is a different kind of prophet. Not like Moses. Yes, human like Moses, but also divine. Also one who is able to absorb the wrath of God at human sin. Who is able to make sure that God will stay true to his justice and holiness. By sacrificing himself and taking on the guilt and the shame and the punishment and the wrath belonging to us. And yet, even though he died, he rose again. And when he rose again, where did that happen? It happened in the garden. It happened in the garden. Why? Because that's where our longing for a prophet comes from. And so Jesus returns to the garden. And he says, now the stone is rolled away. The seraphim are gone. You are welcome to come in. You're welcome to be part of God's family again. Punishment has been taken. God's wrath has been satisfied. And now God's grace is poured out through the open tomb. That's what our prophet does. Different from Moses, isn't it? That's why he's the final prophet. There's nothing else to do. 
Jesus dies, and on the cross he says, it is finished. What's finished? Everything. Everything is done. There's nothing else to do. There's nothing else to say. We've been given free access by grace to God who wants to be reconciled with us. So we've learned about this new prophet. Now the last question that's left is, will you listen to him? You know who he is? You know why he's come? Because you long for that prophet. Now will you listen to him? Would you respond to this message? The message of reconciliation through his birth and life and death and resurrection? Would you respond to him? Are you listening to the prophet? Are you accepting his grace? Chalmers, an old Scottish preacher, said that in the gospel, we see God without injury to his other attributes, like holiness, plying the heart of man with the irresistible argument of kindness. The gospel is an irresistible argument of kindness. Not to neglect God's other attributes, but they've been taken care of. God's holiness and wrath have been satisfied on the cross. And now, in the resurrection, God comes to us as a kind God, as a gracious God, and he plies our hearts with this argument of kindness. Do you accept it? Do you buy into that argument? Do you say, yes, this is the word of the Lord, that this word of reconciliation is true, that Jesus did come to save me, that he came to take care of my sin on the cross, and he came to welcome me back into the garden where this longing for God to speak to me will be finally fulfilled. When Jesus returns and you see God's face, as C.S. Lewis says, the face which is the delight or the terror of the universe. Which expression will that face have when it's turned towards you? Conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised? Which is it? You know what the difference is? Is whether you have trusted the word of the prophet. If you believe Jesus, that God wants you to be with him by grace, and you believe that what Jesus did is enough, what he says is true, God will turn his face upon you, and his expression will be glory inexpressible. He would just delight to see you. Don't you want that? Let me apply this to to those who have committed to Christ. You've heard that word. You've accepted it. You're walking with Jesus. There's another point of application before we get to communion. Are you listening to all that Jesus says to you? If he is the final prophet, if what Jesus came to say is exactly God's word and it's on the authority of God himself, just like when I'm sending Polly up and say, you know, come down because Papa said so. Jesus comes to us and Jesus says something to us because God says so. There's authority behind it. Do you listen to all that he says? You know, the old catechism, you know, catechism is question and answer, uh, doctrinal statement. The old catechism says, ask the question, how does Jesus execute this prophetic office? How does Jesus act as a prophet now? And the answer is, through his word, through scripture, and through his spirit. 
In other words, God speaks to you now. Jesus speaks to you now through Scripture, through this book, and through the promptings of the Holy Spirit in your heart. The question is, are you listening to all of that? Is all of that authoritative to you? Or are you picking and choosing, perhaps, parts that you like from his word? Things that you agree with from his word. If you're doing that, he's not your final prophet. You are. But if he is your final prophet, whatever he says is true, is to be obeyed, is to be trusted, and is to be delighted in, whether it's in the book or what the Holy Spirit prompts you to do or say or feel in your own heart. You know, it's hard for Christians today. It's hard for Christians in any time of history because there's always conflicting theories. There's always conflicting information. And it's easy for us to say, of course I believe Jesus on this point. Why? Well, I agree with it anyway. Whether Jesus says it or not, I'm still going to do it because I like it. I agree with that. What about the other parts where you don't agree? That's when it's really important. That's when you realize whether God really does speak to you through Jesus as the final prophet or he doesn't. There's lots of areas. I don't want to be too specific about it. I want you to search your hearts. If you're a Christian, search your heart. What is God telling you through his word? What is God telling you through his spirit in your heart? What does he prompt you to do, prompt you to change, that you need to take on his authority and say, because Jesus is my prophet, I will do it, I will think it, I will feel it, I will believe it, I will delight in it, I'll be changed by it. What is it? Well, when we take communion, I encourage you to think about it, to pray about it, to open your heart before the Holy Spirit. If you are a believer, you are welcome at this table. You don't have to be part of this church to come to take communion with us. If you have a relationship with God through Jesus, if you heard that message of reconciliation, if you accepted it with a full heart and say, Jesus is my prophet, he is my Lord, he is my Savior, you come to the table, we're not going to turn you away. We want you here. But if you're not, don't come to the table. That's not for you. If you're not part of God's family, you don't come to God's dinner. But maybe this is a time when you listen to him, when you hear his voice, and when you become part of his family. Maybe this is the time when you respond to the word of the Lord spoken through Jesus.